teens and sex. How does one navigate from shame and regret to integrity and wellness? EdCast guest host Rick Weisbord, a member of the HGSE faculty, sat down with Peggy Orenstein, author of the New York Times bestselling book, Girls and Sex, to discuss, amongst many things, what happens after yes. I wanted to ask you just to go back and fill us in some on the background for the book, what prompted you to write it, were there passions behind it? Well, you know, there were a few things. I've been writing about girls now for over 20 years, and my last book, Cinderella My Daughter, was looking at the impact of the pretty and sparkly culture on little girls and the ways that it told girls that how they looked was more important than who they were. Um, so coming out of that, it felt natural to kind of look up to older girls. And at the same time, I'm a mom, and I have a daughter who's almost 13 now, and I was hearing a lot of stories from my friends who had older kids um, about hookup culture, about binge drinking, about sexting, and, you know, my response was kind of want to want to go, I don't want to hear about that yet, please, and then I thought, well, parenting from ignorance and fear, you know, not the best strategy. So there was that, and, and then the other piece that was really important was that we were having this umbrella conversation about uh, sexual assault on campus, and that conversation is so important, but I also wanted to know, it seemed like a, a, a beginning rather than an endpoint consent, so I wanted to know what happened after yes. So kind of thinking about all those things together um, made me sort of want to launch myself out in the world and start doing what I do, which is to, to talk to young women and try to surface their stories and their voices about an issue. When you say what happened after yes, what, ki what kinds of things do you mean? Um, well, you know, what was going on in consensual encounters and, and how might what happens in consensual cons encounters be um, feeding into what we were seeing in terms of assault and coercion on campus? So walk me through the, the book a little bit and both, um, I think, I'd love to hear about the process of writing it, but also about uh, things that really jumped out at you, sort of key findings, things that were surprising to you. Well. First of all, I probably I should say who I spoke with. So I talked to girls between about the ages of 15 and 20, and um, they they spanned a pretty broad ethnic swath, but they were all pretty much in the de demographic that you'd call middle class and upper, upper middle class. They were um, either college-bound or in college, and I chose that group because I wanted to talk to girls that we think of as having opportunities and girls that we think of as being the primary beneficiaries of the feminist movement. Because I thought even if those girls who were, you know, doing really well in school, who had you know, hot lofty goals, who were leaning in all over the place, were um, toppling in their personal lives, then we couldn't deny that there was an issue. We couldn't just say it was these other girls or, or whatever. So that was where I started. And I think the thing that was surprising to me was that while young women today did feel that they could engage in sexual activity, they didn't so much feel like they could enjoy it. There was a real schism there. And when you say they didn't feel like they could enjoy it, just what, what was go what's going on and what did you find out um, as, you, as you dug in, as you began to talk to? Well, so for instance, one girl that I spoke with said, um, she told me, I'm from generations of strong women, and my grandma's a firecracker, and my mother's a firecracker, and my sister and I are loud, and that's our form of feminine power. And then she narrated a series of kind of 
non-reciprocal, not very satisfying, vaguely demeaning um, hookups, one-off hookups that were kind of the sum and substance of her sexual experience. And she said, well, you know, I guess we girls were socialized to be these um, meek creatures who uh, don't express our wants. And I said, wait a second, five minutes ago you told me that you were this strong woman. And she said, yeah, well, nobody told me that that strong woman image applied to sex. So what, there was this way that although the, the culture is littered with female body parts and girls are you know, in every way encouraged to kind of present themselves as sexy, we never have any honest, real conversation about sexuality or sexual development or what sex should feel like to them or under what circumstances you engage or you know ethical responsible reciprocal pleasurable ideas about sexuality with kids I, I want to turn to that in in just a minute but I wanted to ask you um, about about two related things I mean you've talked about the sort of the denial of female pleasure mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering if you could say more about what are, you, what, what are the roots of that and why is it that you think that boys are ignoring girls' pleasure, girls are um, unwilling to assert their needs for pleasure? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think either, either um, gender really ever learns about it. I mean, we, we, I call it the American psychological clitoridectomy. And what I mean by that is that when we have our baby girls and baby boys, we tend to um, name all the body parts on infant boys. So at least, you know, here's your pee-pee something. Um, but with girls, we go right from navel to knees. And we just don't, you know, there's no better way to make something unspeakable than to leave it unnamed. And then when they're older, they go into their puberty education class, and they learn that boys have erections and ejaculations, and girls have periods and unwanted pregnancy. Um, and you see that sort of, you know, steer's head looking thing on the inside of the woman's body. And then that grays out between the legs. And you never hear the word vulva. You never hear the word clitoris. And not, not surprisingly, fewer than half of teenage girls 14 to 17 have ever masturbated. And then they go into their partnered experience. And we expect them somehow to have a sense of equality or think it's about them or think that their pleasure has um, value. And in the book, I talk about um, Sarah McLellan's phrase, which is intimate justice. She's a, a psychologist at University of Michigan. So it's not just about, you know, girls getting theirs, but it's, it's just like when we talk about housework, when we talk about who vacuums the rug or who does the dishes. We know that those are political questions, not just personal questions. And similarly, sex brings up these dynamics of um, personal power, of, uh, of economic disparity, of violence, of mental health. And so she encourages us to ask, who gets to engage in an experience? Who gets to benefit from it? Who's the primary beneficiary? Who gets to enjoy it? Um, and how each partner defines good enough? And so, you know, honestly, I think those are very hard questions for adult women and sometimes very painful questions for us to confront. But when we're talking about girls who are in their early formative years, I just kept coming back to this idea that girls' early experiences shouldn't be something that they have to get over. Let me just change directions only slightly because I think um, based on, on reading your book, I know you think of porn as entwined with these issues. Mm -hmm. but. Um, I'm interested in how you think 
If you could just say more about the impact of porn and what you think, how this is seeping into the culture, how it's affecting girls, how it's affecting boys. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I, had, I, I get emails from people who will say, um, you know, I'm really liberal, but I'm really concerned about porn, as if those two things are mutually exclusive. Um, and because I think in so many ways, porn is about as conservative and as regressive as it can be in its, in its images of female sexuality as enthrall to male gratification. So we know, obviously, the internet has been a game changer this way, that kids are now exposed to porn at very young ages, and that the porn that they're exposed to is ever more explicit. Um, we also know that absent um, parents talking to kids, absent schools talking to kids, they go to the digital street corner and they get information about sex online. I had a lot of girls say to me that they would look things up online um, if they did, you know, just to see how things fit together or because they didn't want to look stupid when they were going to, you know, give oral sex. They wanted to know how to do it. And obviously, that's not where we want our kids to be getting their sex education um, for all of those reasons, you know, the distortion of bodies, the transactional nature of it, the eroticization of humiliation of women. Um, all of which is presented in an arousing way. So of course it's arousing, you know? And so it is affecting um, how boys and girls uh, uh, proceed with sex, because they're seeing this before they really ever have any encounters. And girls would tell me things, I guess on the more G-rated end, um, they would say things to me like, a number of girls said, my boyfriend wants to know why I don't make those noises like the women in porn during sex. and. I heard that question so many times that you know I'm supposed to have like journalistic distance. I I couldn't maintain it. And look, you know, it's a movie, and a movie needs a soundtrack, or it's a silent movie. So they have to make those noises, or it would be a silent movie. And the girls would sort of look like they go, oh wow, I you know I I hadn't thought about that. But there were a lot of ways that the dynamics of porn and the expectations of what people wanted, the expectations of what people liked, the expectations of how people perf would perform, both boys and girls, were making their way into um, sexual experiences and um, not in ways that were enhancing relationships. So let, let's move to. Um to educators and to parents. Mm -hmm. And I would be interested in your thoughts about what the landscape is around education right now. Um, are there bubbles of hope out there? Are there signs that some people are talking about these issues effectively? What do you think the typical conversation or non-conversation is like? Um, what would you like people to be doing in, in education? Well, I think there's bubbles of hope. And part of the reason I end the book in a sex ed classroom, a co-ed sex ed classroom, is because I do believe that there is potential there. And I wanted to show what a classroom can look like when somebody's doing it right. And what was great about the classroom that I went into, which was um, that of a, a woman named Karis Dennison, um, was that so much of talking about sex is not about sex at all but it's about decision making, it's about ethics, it's about respect, it's about talking about how we treat people. Um, so a lot of that was going on in that classroom. And in fact, at one point, I think because of all of that, um, a young man raised his hand, it was one of my favorite moments, and said, um, you know that baseball metaphor for sex? I never thought about it before, but in baseball there's winners and there's losers. So who's the loser supposed to be in sex? Although actually, I think girls are the field, not the opposing team. But anyway, they um, the the uh, either the loser or the field. They're either the loser <laughs> or the field. Yeah. So, but in in um, that moment, I thought, you know, 
yes, it's just one anecdote, but it was kind of a profound shift for that young man. And I think that it will mean that he will go into his encounters, whether they're for 10 minutes or for 10 years, with more respect and with more of a sense of being a partner rather than an adversary who sees girls' limits as a challenge to get by. So I think there is great possibility in sex education. And, and in California, you know, now consent education is mandatory. Comprehensive sex education is supposed to be mandatory. But um, unfortunately, although there's been some shift away from abstinence-only education because it's been such a resounding failure, it's still a huge fight in most of this country. We are running out of time, which I'm very sorry about because I could talk to you about this forever. But quick thoughts about parents and um, I, you know, I know that parents are not talking to their kids yeah, about these no, they're things not. or not, not in ways that are meaningful or ineffective. But thoughts about what, what we might do with parents and how we might make some progress? Well, I think one way to think of it as a parent, um, you know, I, lo I looked into differences in different countries. And in, in, in Holland, where things are, are, where outcomes are much better than ours, Parents are not more comfortable talking about sex necessarily, but whereas American parents tend to emphasize uh, risk and danger, Dutch parents frame the conversation about as around, um, around uh, balancing responsibility and joy. And I think just sort of making that shift in our own heads is a place to start, that we need to talk about the responsibilities. We need to talk about the ways that one prepares. We need to talk about that. And we need to talk about the, sp the physical and emotional pleasures of sex as well and be honest about that as well so that our kids will go in again, you know, respectfully, ethically, reciprocally, and pleasurably. Um, thank you so much, Peggy. I am cheering wildly for you. I think this <laughs> is a super important book to get out there. It's a book everybody should read, and you have sparked um, just a critical conversation. Thank you.